At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Hello and welcome to the When to Jump podcast. Once again, I am Alex Abnos filling in for your normal host, Mike Lewis. He'll be back in a couple weeks. Thanks so much for listening, especially to those of you that stuck around from the last episode, which was for Small Business Week. That one did really well, and I hope you'll stick around for more insight from people that have jumped. This week, Mike welcomes Kay Hyde to the show. Kay left a lucrative career in finance, and it led him to some unexpected places. And these days, he runs a blog, has a podcast, and is a contributing editor for Quartz. I'll just leave it at that and let Mike explain the rest. This is a great interview. I enjoyed listening to it, and hopefully you will too. Here's his interview with Kay High. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the When to Jump podcast. Shout out for this episode goes to my buddy from the gym, John Caldor, who emailed me the other day about getting in touch with Kay High. Kay is my next guest on the episode of this uh, week's show. Kay worked for 14 years in finance as a managing director at a firm called BlackRock before taking a jump at the age of 35 with a wife and a one-year-old to launch a blog called Rad Reads, which quickly turned into a vibrant community of folks of all different types, all talking about things that I think are important to our own community here at When to Jump. Kay has been an entrepreneur in residence at Quartz and is now contributing editor of Quartz at Work. His newsletter is called by John and now myself, a must read with morning coffee on Sundays. What better way to endorse something than that? And his voice is one of the most authentic and honest takes on on why we need to live for the now. And I think we'll get into that a bit on the podcast. Uh, Something that I think everyone here will enjoy listening to, and I'm excited to hear your thoughts. Uh, Kay, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to do this. So let's get right to the deathly stuff of this, (laughs) The, the nitty gritty, serious, scary things. You described to me when we first met through John a feeling of knowing your own sense of mortality, and that seemed to center you on how you made a very big choice in your life. Can you tell me a bit about that? Oh, yeah. Let's let's get into the spicy stuff. <laughs> um, I will... Um, I'd start with... I was probably eight or nine where I had this recurring nightmare. They say that kids understand the concept of death around three or four years old. And I had this recurring nightmare when I was eight or nine years old of, you know, the opening credits from Star Wars where it's just kind of an infinite uh, uh, stars moving kind of incessantly. Yep. Like, and, uh, and in that dream, there was just this representation of me and it was slowly disappearing and moving away towards infinity. And that was that was a recurring nightmare, and um, it wasn't it wasn't even about um, the fear of the actual act of dying. Um, it was really more on the infinite nature of time and versus juxtaposed with the finite nature of our lives. Um, and so I'll jump, no pun intended, to um, when I did decide to jump. You know what? The, the crazy thing is that I, I didn't really um, 
process those feelings about mortality. I had kind of um, suppressed them. And so when I jumped, um, this is a little uh, uh, tidbit that, that often gets lost in my story. But when I left my career at BlackRock, I actually left because I was a classic overachiever and I said, I feel unsettled right now. Something feels off. I need a bigger challenge and I would like to be on a you know fast company 40 under 40 as an entrepreneur. So I bought that trope of, of um, you know, creating your own company, actually amassing, I wanted to make uh, a lot of money. And so that was the original reason behind my jump. It sounds like you were then jumping for the wrong reasons originally, right? Y- yes and no. Um, so I was jumping for a few reasons. One was that I was very bored and I would say kind of comfortably numb at my job. Uh, the second was that I had all these little side projects that I had been cultivating. I had started my newsletter. I was secretly organizing networking events. I was advising tech companies. I was an angel investor. And I was doing all that t- stuff at 4 or 5 in the morning or at 10 p.m. And this like 5% of my time was bringing me 100% of my professional satisfaction. And then the third reason was status. I thought that I'd get out of my funk with a bigger challenge. And with a bigger challenge came the recognition if you were able to succeed. So my reason to jump was really like a a dangerous or maybe beautiful cocktail of those three things. And what happened next? Wow. So I realized that I, could, I couldn't start a company while I was working, because I tried. <laughs> I got the courage to leave, but here's the crazy part. I was going to leave with no plan other than to start a company that I didn't know what it was going to be. It took me a year to be okay with explaining that to my peers. So think about that. I, had, I was okay with the financial risk. I was okay with the career risk. But it took me a whole nother year to be okay to explain to my peers in finance that I was jumping with no plan other than to start this hypothetical company. Did you, what was the fear? Was it that they would call you out on not planning and you needed to plan it? Or was it that they might say something or look at you not in a really cool way that you had hoped? It was really simple. That I thought that they would look at me and be and say, you're stupid. Why would you do this? Why wouldn't you try something while you're working? Why wouldn't you take a sabbatical? Why wouldn't you, to just go and and not have a plan run so counter to the finance mindset? And and I was, um, I just didn't want to be judged by them. That That's really what it was. And it triggered a whole, I mean, that was a whole set of insecurities about Am I making the right decision? You know, that's when the self-loathing and self-doubt kicks in. So I was scared of being perceived as stupid, but that was really just like uh, pushing one domino towards all these feelings of um, of self-doubt and, and, and lack of confidence to do something bold. Wow. And how did you overcome that? Did you did you plan so that you would look to be looked at as stupid or did you just say, I'm going to jump anyway? You know, I, I got a narrative uh, that that worked, which was, Guys, I tried and it didn't work. And so at least I had an answer. But really, that was just the tip of the iceberg because when I left, right away I would get all these text messages. They were, they were the worst. You probably remember these. Oh, yeah. um, what are you doing now? 
what's what's next and i think they were from a good place but man when when i if you saw my arms like the the hairs are sticking up like at an inch high it was just like i didn't know like i was jumping into the unknown and to have someone say uh, ask me what are you working on it's like dude i just left a week ago like can i just can i chill and and that's when i learned that you know people who haven't jumped they see the world in two states you're either working on something or you're on vacation. There's the, this part in the middle where you're tinkering, right. and experimenting. Like that doesn't exist. No, I, I can relate to that. I remember my friend, one of my best friends from growing up, he left a Wall Street bank to go help his dad, uh, you know, run a small business. And he told me, he was like, you know, I moved back to our hometown. And he said, Mike, there are like two types of people in this world. There are people who get the idea of taking a jump. Maybe they don't jump, but they can, they respect that. They can understand that, that desire, that fundamental desire to do something that might be different. And then there's everybody else. And he said for him, it's been so important for his own health and well-being that he seeks out that former group and stays away from the latter group just so that he can surround himself with people that are like, yeah, it's crazy, but it's not stupid. And, you know, I talk a lot about that in my book actually is like, you shouldn't feel that because the person next to you doesn't understand what you're doing, that that's wrong. And yet, especially if you're in a traditional job and a place where people don't have maybe uh, the perspective or, or even desire to think about something different, that that means you're doing something wrong. And yet it's easy Mm. to fall into that trap. Absolutely. And that's when you realize that, you know, a lot of people are very conformist and then there's no judgment on that. But something in my decision triggered uh, an unease and made them reflect in their own way. And some of them took it out on me directly and others it was passive aggressive and others it was in my own head. I'll never know what's the true split, but I definitely felt uh, very, very scrutinized. I still feel that three years later scrutinized. Yeah, it's really hard to know. And I think it's such a rat hole to get into where you're just like, you got to listen to the internal kind of compass. And so you did and you jump and, and, and then, you know, you're what, 34, you've got a, an infant and a wife, you're no longer a managing director. What is that life like? Man, at, at first it was awesome. Um, I was just loving the time with my family. You know, I still had, I was, I had 18 months of Cobra insurance to go. Uh, my, like my back pay vacation was still coming in. <laughs> I was like, ah, I, I could do this. And, and I just, I kind of took, a uh, like a one, a six week vacation just in New York and just like chilled. And, um, you know, I was still fighting those text messages. And then um, I decided to, uh, we decided as family to get off the grid. And we did what I call the the family version of Eat, Pray, Love. And we just bought a one-way ticket, um, wife, the daughter, and I to uh, Bali. And uh, we didn't know when we were going to come back. Um, and we just went. And we ended up being gone for uh almost four months and we just kind of looked at the map we're like where should we go next and it was one of the most magical times as a family but it really helped me get out of that kind of new york city you're crazy why did you do this like maybe it was just uh the best way to cope was to just be in a 
time zone and place where your cell phone didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, and so, so we did that. And, and that's where the change really started to happen because you could, you don't realize that. I mean, I was, think about like, uh, you know, you're an athlete. Imagine if you had your kind of illustrious squash career and you never once stretched like it, it will take you months of yoga to get your body back to a normal like state of my state of my uh, of state of physicality the, the way it should be and I needed that for my mind and my soul man I had been grinding since I was like 12 years old you know so it's like 22 years of really intense work and and fear and anxiety in me. but two things that really made a big difference I got a life coach and I started to do, uh, I started to meditate uh, 40 minutes a day. And those two things really, I believe, were the ignition towards uh, what, uh, first me not wanting to build this crazy startup anymore and to really go down a path where I'm still kind of feeling it out as I go along. So what would you say to the person who's listening to being like, I can't relate to this guy, moves to Bali, starts meditating nearly an hour mm-hmm. a day. What would you say to them uh, that that makes it clear you're just like every one of us? Um, well, the first thing was I was. Uh, I was the guy that did CrossFit and I was tethered to my BlackBerry and um, I felt really crappy about myself when my boss yelled at me. Uh, I was insecure when I couldn't get a date. Um, you know, before I met my wife, uh, when I started losing my hair, it freaked me the hell out. (laughs) And so like, I was that guy, uh, that person. And you know, what I realized is that, um, you know, the coaching and the meditation, first of all, those two things I believe are, are pretty accessible, but really what the coaching was, was I never once stopped to reflect what my life stood for. Like I never thought, I never paused and said, why am I here? What do I stand for? What is important to me? What kind of activities and people bring me joy? How important is money to me? How important is status to me? I never asked those questions. I just defaulted. I like look around. I was like, oh, success looks like a MD with a, with two X5s. It's like, okay, that's success. I looked to my right. It's like, oh, health means like this dude doing CrossFit all the time. I'm like, I must do CrossFit. And then I look forward. I'm like, what is being cool? Like, oh, that guy has a really nice Panerai watch. Like that must be what being cool is. Like that, that was how I lived my life. And I don't think you need to go to Bali um, or get a coach to do that stuff, but to really like take stock of what's important to you, who you are, why you do the things you do um, was probably uh, the big uh, turning point. That's what I would tell people. Do you think that has to do with the the existential mortality dream? Uh, absolutely. And the one, so I never, I was the guy when, if there was a death scene in a rom-com, I would cover my eyes <laughs> because the the concept of, of mortality and death is like, it was so terrifying to me. And so I would just not engage in the topic. And, and I've been really lucky that I haven't really lost anyone close in my life yet. Um, and so, I, but I was always bracing, you know, and if you saw me now, I'm like clenching my fist and my face really <laughs> tightly. I was always bracing. Something bad's going to happen to me. Something's going to knock me up. I got to be ready. Like that is, that's like a, an animal that's 
under attack, right? Like your heart rate is up, your cortisol is up. You're not thinking clearly. So that's physically, but let's talk about it mentally. Once I started to just read about death, I just, everything became so much clearer and calmer. And one book that I'm embarrassed, I've only made it through the first two and a half chapters, the, the, the introduction rock my world. It's a book called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker, which I think won the Pulitzer in the early 70s. And he basically says, man, humans, um, are unique because we have a conscience and yeah. we can see the future and reflect on the past. That's what makes us human versus an animal. However, it's like a very dangerous line to cross because once you can start living in the future and in the past, you can rob yourself of the present. And when I read Becker, he said this consciousness that the biggest thing is our ability to look in the future is then we realize like we're not going to be around anymore. And that's freaking scary because we have egos, men in particular. And so what Becker posited was that because we're so scared of our demise, we feel the need to live heroic lives, which means start unicorn companies, have buildings named after us, write the greater American novel, um, which by the way, I'm still attempting to do many of these things. Um, and all these things you realize is like you you want to plant your stake in the ground and be like this that he calls it your immortality projects and when i looked at when i took stock of my life i said to myself holy cow just about everything i'm doing is me trying to create an immortality project right the desire to start a, a um company that i would sell for hundreds of millions of dollars i don't even want that much money i wouldn't know where to spend it i like working out and reading like um <laughs> So then I said to myself, wow, all this time I wanted to build this immortality project in the form of, let's say, like a really high growth venture back company. Guess what? I don't want to do that anymore. Like, and I started like peeling things off, like the to-do list. And I'm like, I had never felt more liberated in my life. And so that was the real tipping point when I saw even my relationship with CrossFit. I had created this messed up story in my head that if I could uh, out CrossFit a 22 year old, then I was closer to a 22 year old than a 35 year old. Yep. And so I would like push myself to the point of puking like every single time. Not because I wanted to win the workout. I mean, what does that even mean anyway? But. I did it because to me, it was my own personal affirmation that I was closer to 22 than 35 years old. Once I realized that, I still love CrossFit, but I don't push myself to puke. Right. <laughs> I just go, I work out hard, and then I call it a day. I'm not driven by that fear. They call death the stealth motivator. That's so interesting. You know, I remember reading this book, A Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson, and it's a science book. The premise is that Bill Bryson, this epic, amazing, easy to follow writer uh, who wrote Walk in the Woods and all this other stuff, takes all that is cool in science and puts it into an easy to follow book. And it's this massive book, but it's really fun to read. I don't know if Bryson had this intention or not, but I read it when I was on tour in these tiny little towns in Western Europe playing squash, living with a soon to be priest who is playing the tour on his last go around and an up and coming Egyptian and um, a school teacher giving it one more shot and all this just interesting intersections of life. And I was sitting there reading this big book. And again, I don't know if it was in his intention, but it struck me as this book about what life is and you know how long it actually goes for and the impact we have, which turns out is 
less than a speck of a speck of a speck of sand in a very big desert, you know, a small blink of an eye of a really long, you know, period of time, whatever analogy you want to give it, we just aren't here that long. And it was very similar to you. It was humbling in the sense that, you know, we only see our, our impact and what's going on in the world through our lens, a camera is pointed as at us. And so going back to your point about what we think people think of us, it's usually way overstated and way egocentric driven because we just think people think about us a lot because that's how we go through life is we're the center of our own story. And reading that book, I, in a weird way, just brought me back to what you're going to do and, and how long we have, which, which it turns out isn't that long. And so maybe there's a negative and pessimistic and fatalist view of, okay, well, what's the point? But in some ways, maybe I came to the same conclusion that you just described, which is, okay, I've got this time and I don't have the expectation to, to be um, immortal. How am I going to spend it? Because uh, it's, it's going to you know, come to a close at some point. And it really forces you to cherish the present moment. I mean, look, you and I were both entrepreneurs. We work our tails off, but I love what I do. I choose the people I spend my time with. I write about the ideas that are really important to me. I'm still working. And so it was, it, it kind of acted as this kind of forcing function around like what's really important today. And what did that make you do after Bali? You come back, you had started meditating, you had the coach. Did you go into the startup? Yeah, so I I had a brief flirtation because like anything, these 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 mindsets that you've built over decades don't just go away overnight, but mine was starting to crack. The the mindset being like I need to start this, you know, highly successful company. I need people to understand what I'm doing and not think that I'm not have them think I'm an idiot. Um, and then one day uh, I just started writing. I just wrote a, a blog post and it was January of 16. So I'd been gone for five or six months. And uh, I just wrote, you know, it might look like I have my stuff together. If you looked at my LinkedIn profile, um, you know, it probably looks really great and, and all that jazz. But really, I'm confused. I'm afraid. I'm, I'm lost. I'm not a great dad. Um, I'm not a great husband. Um, I'm, I'm flawed, not in a like, woe is me, but just like, yeah, these are things about me. And, um, and I'm, I'm struggling, but I'm also working through my struggles through these, you know, different practices. And I just wrote that and people responded right away. And I had, I mean, I had an audience of maybe 12 readers. Um, <laughs> but all 12 and, of them were very responsive. Yeah, because they were a lot of my, like, I posted on my LinkedIn and, and people were like, what is this guy doing? Like he disappears to Bali for five, four months and now he's writing this junk. Um, but a few people wrote to me and they said, I don't know what you're doing, but you have said things in your writing that I have not even internal, I had not even verbalized in my own head. And it's really powerful. Thank you. And I was like, "What the hell? Really?" <laughs> um, I wasn't a writer. Keep in mind, I would—I had never written. I was a computer science major and a finance guy. The only writing I did was investor newsletters, begrudgingly. So I wasn't <laughs> a writer. Um, and so I just did that, and it didn't matter. You know, five, fifteen people, seventeen people, nineteen people, and I just kept doing it. And 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 
these people out of, you know, it was like teenagers would respond to my mortality. I mean, a lot of teenagers respond to, to some of these fears on, uh, of mortality, teenage men usually, uh, and college age men. <clears throat> and then 65 year olds would, would write and say, wow, what this is this thing you have. Yes. Like I have this really messed up relationship with money too. And I don't understand why I keep thinking one more bonus and it will go away. And it just kind of gave me the confidence to just keep chipping away at it. And that's when it, when it all really emerged. So that was, it started around January of 2016. And at that point it was like, what, I, I got to do more of this writing. I need to just keep, keep putting it out there. Was a burden lifted? How did that feel? It, it just, it felt so, um, it, it just, the words came out of, uh, of my fingers onto the keyboard. Like I didn't even have to try to write. It just came out naturally. And then it was the, these tiny interactions. I mean, people, the things that people were telling me, the strangers were telling me, because it was, you know, it would start to grow little by little. And I was just so moved. And, and I couldn't believe that by sharing these things, it was impacting other people's lives. So it was, I was seeing an impact. It was really fun and honest, like the selfish reason, it just felt really damn good to, to put your feelings on paper, you know, whether it's for the entire internet to see, or just to put it on paper, that's a personal question, but it it just, it just felt good. And don't get me wrong. That's the entrepreneur in me was kicking in too, because I loved what I realized was that I loved digital storytelling Hmm. and so then blog posts turned into little videos and videos turned into a YouTube, a TED talk. And, and so, you know, uh, and I could have never, ever, ever planned it, but I just kind of went with my gut. Um, I did things that I found fun. I put in the hours. I was very consistent. Um, and I experimented like crazy. I was a 37 year, 36 year old guy on Snapchat. Like <laughs> I have friends who are not on Facebook. So they're, they're like, people were like, what is he, why is he talking about mortality on Snapchat? And six people are watching. And, you know, it, it didn't matter who was watching. I was doing it because I thought it was really fun. And I was getting some interaction with people. And I just thought it was really cool to learn all these new um, types of mediums. So I just kind of went with, with my gut and experimented a lot. You also, I think, do a very, very honest and accurate job of talking about how you have not made it through some tunnel where it is now rosy green and light pouring in from all sides. And it's just perfect, especially as, as a father and a husband in a very expensive city. Can you talk a little bit about the realities of doing what you're doing? I think you have a great kind of brutal honesty about why it's hard and why you're still doing it. After the jump, uh, it is, it, it is very complicated. And so here's, here's the thing though, is that we confuse financial security and what I call a life well lived. And so someone might say, well, I can't go and be a writer because, you know, I have to survive. It's like, no, you could live at home. You could move to the cheapest city in the United States um, and become a writer. You just have chosen not to uh, and used financial security as kind of a whipping boy for that. And so really taking stock of what you need uh, to survive. And then, you know, I, I put out, I, I created a, a model <laughs> and I put that money uh, in like, it was like two years of runway. I put it in a separate um, bank account 
And, um, and when it ran out, it was, I would then go back to get a job. But the, the reality is that life doesn't work that way. It's not, it's not these like binary opposites. And what happened was as I started to do some stuff, people like, Hey, can you come speak at our company? We'll, we'll pay you X. I'm like, really? And then all of a sudden your two year runway gets a little bit longer and a little bit longer. Exactly. And then you make tweaks and, and, and the, the tweaks go in both directions. You know, like I had a second kid of like, Oh crap. Um, so they, <laughs> a little they, bit they shorter, go in, a little bit shorter. Exactly. And they, they, they go in both directions, but, but people, you know, it's a very natural feeling to, uh, to be terrified when your bank account goes down. Um, because you pin your survival hopes on that. Like you actually think that you will be homeless. The number, the number of millionaires that I know that think that if they took six months off, uh, they'd be homeless is insanely high. And that's, there's a reason for that. It's evolutionary. We're, we're wired to survive. And so that it instantly triggers your fight, fight or flight response. You need to know how to disentangle that. And you can do that by like, really simple things like a budget. <laughs> I'd never done one of those. Um, and you have to be willing to challenge your status. Like yeah. if, uh, you know, I talked to someone the other day who was very successful and she, she wanted to do something in comedy and she said, but I'd, I'd have to, I'd have to sell my apartment um, and, and get, and rent a smaller one. And she said, I can't do that. I'm like, well, it turns out you, you can't, <laughs> you, you can do that. You're right. You may not want, want to, to. And then it, it, there's the status thing. You know, she felt so uncomfortable with her Wall Street peers knowing that she had downsized her life. Like, why would that? And, and I, I, I sympathize with her because I've been there. But you have to really, and that's where I think having uh, a coach or having someone objective that can really like call you out on that and say, no, you really want to be a comedian and you can sell your apartment and you'll be just fine. You might be happier in a smaller apartment. Totally. Kay Hyde, thank you so much for joining me on the When to Jump podcast. For those who want to check out your newsletter, what's the easiest way to do it? The easiest way is uh, radreads.email, uh, one of those uh, funky uh, domains. Um, and uh, the, the bigger blog is at radreads.co. Um, and also, um, like I said, I'm super active on Snapchat which is as rad reads uh, still a story every day going strong unbelievable so for stories on life and death among a sea of other things that don't have to do with that on snapchat uh, you can find k there which is pretty cool i think awesome thank you mike thanks for listening to the when to jump podcast i hope you enjoyed mike's conversation with k high now, if you want to help us out, the easiest way to do that is by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. It takes less than a minute to give us some stars, maybe five of them if you're feeling generous, and a couple sentences explaining why you enjoy the show. It sounds simple and maybe unnecessary, but trust me, it really does help us out. To find out more about When to Jump, Mike and his team are at whentojump.com and across all social media. That's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of that, at whentojump, all one word. The When to Jump podcast is produced by me, Alexander Abnos, with help from Katie Ferguson and Becky Celestina. The senior editor for Macmillan Podcasts is Alyssa Martino. Check out all of our other great shows at our brand spanking new website. We're very excited about it. It's at macmillanpodcasts.com. That's M-A-C-M-I-L-L-A-N podcasts.com. Thanks for listening, 
and we'll see you next week. Mike will be back soon. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.